This is Horum with Horum's Quorum. My guest today is Blal Zaidi, who's the host of Creator Lab, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's got the highest signal to noise racer out there with the creators, the CEOs, writers, with a variety of people that he interviews. And I wanted to talk to him about the strategy behind his podcast. We talk about some of the insights he's learned from the guests that he's had. We also explore some of the interesting connections and differences between growing up at the son of Pakistani immigrants in the US and the UK. So uh, I enjoy this conversation a lot. I hope you will too. Well, I'm glad that we uh, finally sat down to talk. And, you know, I've been a big fan of your podcast for a while. I think, you know, uh, the quality guests you have is exceptional. And uh, I think you just do a great job of putting people at ease. Maybe it's the whole British thing. You know, people love that debonair British thing. Um, might be part of it. <laughs> I like to say it's the Pakistani and British part of me, you know, because we're, we're welcoming people too. We stuff samosas in people's faces when they come over and give them tea. So I think it comes from that side too, man. <laughs> that, that, that definitely could be part of it. Well, you know, so I guess we can start. There's so many places we can start. I think I, I'm, I'm really fascinated with your podcast and what you're doing with this. So we can start with the genesis of it. And you shared with me that, you know, part of it started with uh, you doing slams in New York. So I want to hear about that. So what was, you know, I think I've been to a couple slams. Honestly, it's not something I've done too much of. Um, but like what caught, what brought you to that? What, what said, hey, what was it? Was there something in you for a long time that I, I really got a slam? I don't know if that's the verb, but like what, what led you to it? No, that's a great question. And it was actually, um, so if anyone, any, everyone listening to this doesn't know me, but my friends who know me know that like I'm quite like a serious, well, I'm, a, I'm a, not that serious in general life, but in terms of business, I'm like a business person. I like numbers. I'm like that sort of brain, but I, I also have this like creative side of me, which has always just been kind of fun. Uh, I've never really taken it that seriously. And I think I've always written. So I used to write little stories as a kid and, and stuff like that, but never, you know, just f for fun on the side. And um, it actually came. So a slam, what you're referring to is basically poetry slams, right? So they're like spoken word poetry, essentially. And, um, yeah, I, I wasn't really that into kind of like writing that sort of stuff, but I used to go. So I'm a big like hip hop fan. I, you know, I grew up loving like Nas, the rapper. He's like my favorite rapper. So he's all about lyricism. So I've always just loved lyrics. And then also in our household, you know, we're Pakistani. So there's all these you know, Pakistani poets that my dad and granddad Dada would be saying like, va, 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 like saying all this stuff. I don't understand like the Urdu as well as they do, but there's a saying like all these lyrics and I'm like, oh, I wish I could kind of understand it at the level they do. So I kind of grew up in that household of respecting it. But I feel like in the UK where I grew up, it wasn't really like a thing. <laughs> you know, it really came from this American culture of, obviously poetry was a thing from like the ancient times, but in the US, this thing called spoken word, it was something I saw on the internet and I think there was something called Deaf Poetry, which is started by Russell Simmons, who's a big uh, music mogul in the hip hop space. So I just kind of saw that on YouTube and I was like, oh, that's such a cool thing. And when I visited New York before I moved here, um, I went, I was here for like 10 days. And the, my favorite moment of being in New York that week was I went to the Neorican Poets Cafe in the East Village. And I was like, didn't know what to expect. And it started and I'm not just exaggerating, but I had like tingles. Like I was like, 
this is the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. Like the crowd was completely silent. And this guy who I later found out was really good. Um, he went and performed for President Obama. And then the other dude on stage was in Hamilton, like the, the musical a few years later. So they were like top, top quality. And I remember just saying, wow, like that would be incredible to be able to, you know, come back again. That's all I thought. Then fast forward a few years later, long story short, I was in a really kind of bad place. I was a little depressed, quite down. And I was working at Google at the time, um, you know, again, not writing at all, like looking at numbers all day. And outside of work, I was looking for something to kind of energize me. And at this time, I just started writing again. Like, I don't know where it came from. I actually think it came, I was coming off a flight and, uh, or oh, I came back from the UK and, um, you know, when you come off a long flight, you're still jet lagged. So for, for like a week, I'm waking up at 4am and I'm not really a morning person. So I was like wide awake and it was dark outside and I just had like these clear thoughts. So, and I just started and I had this idea of the first one I wrote was called pomegranate juice or anar juice. And, um, it was about describing me being in Lahore and, um, looking down at this, glass of, of pomegranate juice and you know if, i'm assuming you know this but in pakistan there's these juice carts on the side of the streets and they're amazing and fresh and it's just a cool story you hear the rickshaws on on one side and people chattering on the other side and then it was basically a big metaphor for like identity so i'm tell a story of me looking down and having these thoughts of me in london me in Pakistan, my family and stuff like that. So that's kind of the first one I wrote. And it's probably the best one I've still written. I've written like 10 or 15 since then. Um, and then uh, I went home for Christmas that year and happened to share it with my dad, uh, just like cautiously like mentioned it to him and eventually shared it with my whole family. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually impacting them. Like my brother was like, wow, that lifted my mood. And uh, from there, I was like, okay, wow, there's something to this. Like, I can actually make people feel something through words. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And so then what was the, so then when, when was the moment you said, okay, time to actually go do the spoken word? Yeah, I guess it was, I started going more regularly as just a viewer, like someone who would like watch in the crowd. Because on Friday nights, um, obviously not now with what's going on, but Friday nights, there's people, even when it's snowing outside, there's like a line out the door, people waiting to get in. Um, and you go and people will sit on the floor. It's packed hundreds of people. So I would go to that and just, it would be like a fun night out. Um, and then on, I think Mondays or Wednesdays, I've forgotten, they did like an open mic. So I started going to listen to that. And then one day I just like, was like oh i was on my own and i didn't feel as embarrassed as like if i was with my friends and i just like put my name down just to see it and i kind of get, just did it i read it off my phone and uh it was like a really cool feeling and i was like oh wow like people actually there's like professional people here because that that's like the the best place so i kind of went straight to the best place and um i could see like there was an interesting angle for me to share some of these stories um and yeah it lifted my mood man it was like really cool for me to just be in a space which is completely different to my day-to-day -day. i'm not in a boardroom or a meeting room with some someone talking about brand advertising or clicks i'm talking about like lahore or east london or whatever i wanted to talk about and so what was the path from you know from storytelling and sharing that to because you know 
podcast or about other people's stories. So what was the path to, you know, wanting to do that and, and share other people's stories and, and with the podcast. find an audience for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think the only real link, I guess I've always liked storytelling um, more so as like a business person though, you know, like I've always just respected it. And I guess I've enjoyed stories as just a consumer from films and books and stuff. But it was never like, oh, I'm going to write stuff to share it one day or I'm not trying to be a professional writer or anything like that. Um, but I I think the love for interviews was actually from way before. I think I enjoyed that um, since I was a kid. Like I watched like in the UK, there's Jonathan Ross on TV every week and I would enjoy those stories. Um, so yeah, I just always loved people's stories. And then the first book I ever read on my own accord was an autobiography, uh, Richard Branson's like autobiography. So I just always loved that. And, um, I did this process where it's called like 15 questions where I was kind of in that down mode when I was at Google. And I said, like, what am I essentially good at? What do other people come to me for? What are things that I do that pass time really quickly? Uh, and then the end of that process, you're kind of writing out like, what is something that I can do today that will like help, you know, lean on the things I'm good at and share the things that I want to share. And uh, that ended up being the podcast. I wrote out like, well, I like having conversations with people already. I, I want to encourage other people to start companies or start, you know, side project or whatever it is. And this is my tiny way of being able to do that. And so, you know, I noticed, you know, you taught, uh, you had your in- recent interview with uh, Polina Marinova Pompliano. And one of the things you mentioned was, you know, how you named your podcast, Create a Life Deliberately, to have it kind of broad. Um, and so it does seem like, you know, much of the people you've interviewed are in the business world in some capacity. So, you know, is that something that you're looking to expand or, you know, to kind of get back to your more poetic roots. I mean, tell me about, you know, where you see yourself taking creator, the creator and creator lab. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the backstory on the name is, so it was always a business podcast, but what the, the point of it was what I wasn't seeing out there really was a link between different worlds. So that was actually the original premise. So when I launched, I recorded 10 or 15 episodes with, you know, VC backed startup founders, bootstrapped self-funded startup founders um restauranters non-profit founders i had people who were educators artists all this sort of stuff so i did actually do that originally um and but what i was always trying to do was pull out the lessons from those people that would be applicable to creating something right so i didn't want to call it business lab one because that's a terrible name but also because uh yeah it wasn't i wanted it to be broad enough that you know i could the word creator re- really resonates. I think nowadays the word creator, some people think of like a YouTube creator and, you know, and they are obviously creators too. But for me, anyone like who starts something, whether that is a site, like you're a creator, like you create a community, you created a newsletter. Um, that's to me is a form of creation. So you have to take an idea that's in your head, make it a reality, um, grow it. And all of those things are things you can learn from, like people who've done it at a higher level, you know? So like, for example, Scott Harrison, founder of Charity Water, he is one of the best promoters in the world, right? An incredible marketer. And um, there's stuff he can teach a startup founder and there's stuff a startup founder can teach him. So I wanted to bring those worlds together. 
And I feel like a lot of the time people are in different silos and they just kind of learn what the SaaS crew learns about and the D2C e-commerce people. And, you know, there's obviously value in that because you go, you can go deep, but a lot of the time it's not as interesting because, you know, it becomes quite one dimensional. Um, so to answer your specific question going forward, I still am interviewing all sorts of people, but I have honed in a little bit on, um, you know, primarily business people, but also, like, you know, Polina, who you mentioned, she was a, a traditional journalist at Fortune magazine. And now she's like a Substack newsletter writer writing directly for an audience. So I'm just interested in interesting people who are doing things at the cutting edge, you know, of business and creativity um, and show people how they can grow it. You know, one of the things you just mentioned that I think is pretty interesting is, you know, people with uh, kind of like in one bubble or a pool of people. And, and that's, you know, kind of mostly what they're absorbing. And I think for myself, I think that's a big part of my goal with 2021 is having a more varied information diet, you know, because I, I think I have, you know, a lot of your guests are people that I already follow on Twitter and there's good things about that. And then there's also a science for me that, you know, I, I want to vary my information diet a little more. So, you know, I'm doing things like, you know, rereading more fiction, rereading in general, um, and then, you know, returning to reading biographies. These are the kinds of things that I'm doing. What are the kinds of things that you're, it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like varying your information diet and inputs is essential. So like, what's your process for doing that? You know, how are you making sure that you're getting a varied input? Yeah. So that's a great point. I think, um, I definitely agree. Like, I don't want to have exactly the same, um, you know, like hear this, you know, be in that echo chamber that we speak about. Right. And that's definitely is a problem. Um, but I guess it brings up the, the question of like diversity and what diversity means. And you know, we could talk for two hours just about that. But the, the summary of why I think is diversity is not just male and female, black, white, brown, you know, race, of course, that's a huge part of it. And, and I think we should have varied group of people within our feeds from those worlds. But also it comes down to differentiate thoughts. You know, like I've, I'm more of a left leaning, more like center left politically leaning sort of person. So I'm, I'm from Europe. So like I'm pretty much like really left here. But like since I've been here for eight years, I'm probably closer to the middle. Um, but like I want to have people who are right-leaning on my podcast, maybe not like far-right, but you know, like someone who's a conservative, like I don't have a problem with someone being conservative. Like there's really great things about being a conservative in some ways. I might not agree with all of those things, but I want to have some of those conversations. So like, for example, I had a guy called Nathan Lutko on the show who's definitely, or Ryan Culp, um, they're both probably more right-leaning than I am. Um, and they were probably the only two guests I've had where people were like, a, you know a handful maybe one or two comments were like oh i don't agree with what he said about jeff bezos or like the healthcare system's corrupt or whatever and i'm like yeah i, I agree with you but <laughs> that's why we're having a conversation so it's not like we're on twitter where there's just a black and white response and you know a tiny character limit we can speak for an hour about the nuance of what's good about the healthcare system and what's bad about the healthcare system and we can actually go into the pros and cons and have a debate so for me that's a big part of like the sorts of people i'm trying to get right and that's a fine balance between 
me being proactive and like me just being fed people like i get inbound or i get introduced to someone and for example like tim urban who's uh one of the most popular writers on the internet he's got the number one ted talk on youtube he got referred to me and i was like of course i want to interview this guy i'm not going to say oh well he's another white guy so i'm not going to have him on you know just to like fit a specific quota but what i do need to do a better job of is to be a little bit more proactive on okay well here's another seven people that do come from a similar background Uh, i need to go and proactively go and find people who might have varied opinions on those people so yeah i try not to just simplify it by those two segments but um I think a part of it is just going and having an open mind to saying, I want to go and find people who don't agree with what I what I agree with at the moment, and maybe I can understand their point of view, not with trying to just prove them wrong, you know, which is quite a hard thing to resist when you think you're right. Um, just truly listening, and um, yeah, so I, that's kind of how I approach it. What about you? Like, have you found any ways to to do this better? Well, you know, I, I think, I mean, you're part of it, honestly. I mean, so, you know, for myself, like I had been focused so much on attorneys and then specifically South Asian attorneys and, uh, you know, you're still South Asian, so I haven't broken out of that yet. Uh, but you're a creator, you're, you're, you know, you had a successful podcast. There's so much that I can learn from you. And then I think hopefully some of the people that listen to this can also learn from as well. So I think it's, you know, I like, going, you know, one step in each direction. So, okay. Uh, you know, there's this grid of maybe, you know, just primary met. So like pr- all things considered, I like talking to South Asian people because, you know, it's not like you meet so many of them in life. I mean, I, I grew up in a part of the world, like where I grew up in New Jersey had a really high South Asian population. So like I happen to grow up with plenty of that, but come on, all things considered, there's still not that many. So like, I, I never object to having more people and elevating more voices like that. Yeah, and yeah. I've definitely talked to enough attorneys for a lifetime. I, I don't need to have another conversation with another attorney ever again, but you know, I kind of like building from, you know, from a small pool of people. I mean, like, you know, it, of course we all know about things like, you know, how Facebook started. Facebook of course was Harvard only, Ivy leagues only college only then expands from there. And so I like serving, you know, a small group of people and just growing from there just organically and just kind of finding your path from there. Um, so yeah. that, that's kind of like my approach to it. And I noticed that, you know, you've also, you know, you interviewed Polina and you also interviewed her husband. You, you know, just like, you know, it, there's like, you know, a ch- you know, you interviewed Andrew Wilkinson and, you know, he's tied to Sean Puri and Sam Parr. So I noticed that, you know, you're also kind of using this chain. And so I'm kind of curious where does, where do you think that's leading you? Like, I mean, I know, I mean, that seems, it seems kind of be along the lines of what, what I was just talking about for my approach. Uh, but again, with what we're both talking about is balancing the pool of people we have on hand and that coherent story with adding new pieces and connecting the dots. So tell me about the strategy in, in, in kind of if, or whatever word you want to use, maybe it's not strategy for, chaining people of, of a kind of a similar yeah. you know pedigree but then also Definitely. wanting to expand beyond that <laughs> yeah yeah for sure i actually the way i describe it is like a cluster of people so and i'm looking at like visually you know there's all the people in the world and i'm going 
in one part proactively to a certain cluster, which is already a cluster that I'm a part of. So that's the first part. It's not like I'm like identified some rising trend and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Let me go and hang out with these people I don't actually like. Like these are all people I follow. I like the ideas. I like what they're doing. So I think that's the first step is I looked at like, what am I genuinely interested in? And like, where am I already spending my time? So that is definitely, you know, more recently on Twitter is a good place for that because you see kind of a shared group of shared group of values. Uh, but it's also wide enough that you can see people like there's a guy coming on soon, sweaty startup guy. If you've seen him, he's like killing it on Twitter, but he's a traditional like, you know, in many ways, traditional uh, business person in that he buys commercial real estate. He and he basically brings a certain layer of technology to it but he's not trying to build the next facebook right so i'm as interested in that as i am someone like the founder of square who i had on who was like truly innovating to create this multi-billion dollar company um so for me it's all about like are they doing something that's interesting enough that i can learn from and can i and is there a lesson for people to take from this? Uh, and obviously a story is important and, and that sort of stuff. But to, to answer your question directly, I have been a bit more intentional about a cluster of people. So yeah, a lot of those people are friends. They follow each other. A lot of us who follow them follow the other people, which I think is a good thing, especially in this current stage I'm in because I basically went to doubling down on the podcast like in August because, you know, I've been doing the podcast for five years. Like I've been recording while I was at Google, while I was at Charity Water. And then I quit my job to give myself the room to spend more time on it. And it was only until like August last year where I said, okay, I'm actually going to treat this like it's one of my main things, not just a side project. Um, and I still, I have a digital marketing agency uh, consultancy. That's where I, I make most of my income. So I still have that and I'm I'm running that at the same time. But I said, well, if half my week is spent on doing great interviews, finding those people, recording, what would the kind of week look like if I dedicated that amount of time to it? And how can I be more strategic about the sorts of people I have on so that in the advertising world, there's this rule of seven. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but essentially what that means is if you think of the marketing funnel, which is like awareness, it's like a funnel like this, um, at the top is like awareness, interest, desire, action, ADA, you might have heard of it called. Um, so let's say my objective is to get my podcast in front of more people. At the awareness level, there's a role in traditional advertising of the rule of seven where you need to see a brand seven times before you even pay attention, right? And and now um, by me showing up on Andrew Wilkinson's feed and Tim Urban and Sam Parr and Sean Puri, a lot of people like this morning, I just saw a tweet from someone saying, Oh, I've like seen your stuff so many times. I've never listened. And now I'm going to listen for the first time. Um, I spoke to someone last night on Clubhouse who was saying they had had my episode subscribed to, but they'd never listened to something until one of their friends had liked one of my tweets. So it's just one of those things where you keep putting a focus energy into one area. It just maximizes your chances of reaching more people and allowing the algorithm to do its job. Whereas previously I was spending time on trying to post on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on on Twitter, trying to get people to join my email list, uh, doing stuff on YouTube. And it's just for one person with limited resources, it's just too much, you know? So I said, okay, I'm going to be doing, you know, audio and video at a very high level in terms of the best guests, really high quality audio. I have a professional editor edit everything um, to make it look really good and sound really good. 
what's that that's like the 80 percent of what i'm going to do and the rest i'm going to have to just leave some stuff on the table so linkedin i don't spend as much time on anymore um even though it's a great network um so yeah that's kind of how i don't know if i answered your question but that's kind of how i've how about how i've been thinking about it no it definitely answered it and i think part of that is talking about this model you have of focus you know and so in, in you know and concentrating your energy and so then i like how you said you know let the algorithm do the work from there so where else are you applying that same construct like how else are you focused you know like where else does that pop you up do you mean in my life or in the in podcast side or i'd say in general because I, I mean i guess that's a tool that you use in general it's a principle yeah. that you use in general so yeah, how that, else are you using that tool yeah, yeah. I'd say that I guess that you, people describe it as an 80-20 rule or Pareto's law, which is to say that what's the 20% of activities I can do that will give 80% of yield or return. So I've always kind of thought about that for a long time and, um, you know, just to be the most effective as possible. So right now, I'd say the, the thing that's popping up in my mind is my health. Like I've been generally sorry for the noise but so with my health i'd say that i uh have i'm like an all-in sort of person or i'm like all or nothing to be really frank with you and i i try not to be like that i try to find balance but i've kind of realized over the years that that's kind of how i am so even when we started this call you asked me a question about like the audio setup and like you could tell i've done all the research in the world to know like what's the best way to do this on zoom and that's just because when i care about something i care the most and I want to like understand it to its full degree. So with health, I'd say I've also spent, you know, years learning about nutrition and exercise and sleep and all the different things. But I've been quite inconsistent with application of what I know, right? Because we all know how to have a six pack, but we don't all have a six pack, obviously. So, um, so that's something, especially, um, like a few years ago, I lost like 50 pounds. I like became the healthiest I've ever been. And that was a great thing. I needed to. I was not in great shape and wasn't really healthy. And then over the last year, we've been sitting at home, um, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves and eating terrible food and stuff. So this year, I've been really focusing in again on like the 80 20 of that. Like, what are the things I can do to really, you know, get myself back in, in a good place? And, and that's going to plan because I've done it before and I know what to do. Um, so that's one area. Um, and in general, it's just work, man. Like, you know, if I'm doing, I have the business on the agency side, the podcast, you know, I'm trying to just have a normal life too and speak to friends and, uh, speak to my family every day and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just about like prioritizing. So I think I've got a lot better at it. Um, but there's some more things that I'd like to do that I'm not doing yet. So like, I want to potentially buy businesses that's like something i've had in the back of my mind for some time um and kind of transition eventually from the agency stuff which is great for cash flow but maybe not long term what i want to do forever and kind of apply what andrew wilkinson is doing he was just on my podcast this week uh, he's done that with 30 different companies and he's buying existing companies so that's another reason i do it because i can go and ask for a meeting with someone who's done this for 10 15 years and learn all the ins and outs of what's working for them, you know? Uh, yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. So is, is part of the goal with the pot? I'm trying to think about, you know, what sort of, um, 
compounding effect the podcast has for you and what the connection is between your other work. Uh, See, so like, I, I really haven't gotten a lot of sense of, well, you tell me, like, what is the connection between your agency and the podcast? Yeah, it's, um, so yeah, it's a great question as you framed it around, like, what's the compounding nature of it and, like, how I think about it. For me, it's ultimately the greatest compounding, apart from, obviously, money in the bank, well, not in the bank, money invested, um, is, like, knowledge and relationships. So to me, that's the two things that, like, the podcast accelerates more than anything. So I make connections with incredible people and I learn every week at a far greater rate than I would if I didn't do it. So like for, for one example, I interviewed Tim Urban and I've been wanting to learn about artificial intelligence for years, like really sit down and like read stuff on it. And um, I just know stuff from like time at Google and, you know, just reading articles here and there. But for that interview, which we didn't even end up talking about AI that much in the end, I spent hours reading his stuff where he wrote about AI spending six months with Elon Musk and the Neuralink team and stuff like that. And that to me wouldn't have happened unless I had the podcast, you know, uh, I also wouldn't have made a connection with him where now I can, you know, speak to him enough that we can like text and be on okay terms, you know? Um, so that's kind of like that to me, there's no downside of that, right? In the long term, anything I do, whether that is starting a company again, if I'm trying to get more clients for my business, um, if I'm trying to just make new friends, like better connections of people, you know, like the five people around you who uh, make you like a better person. Um, that's kind of my way of compounding all of those factors. So directly with the agency, to be frank, it's not something I'm like super focused on, like trying to grow like to a crazy level. I'm just like happy at the stage it's at where I have enough money coming in cash flow. It takes a certain percentage of my week um, which I'm fine with because it keeps me learning in that world as well. And then, um, yeah, so that that's kind of how I think about it. So I have had clients from my podcast where they've either heard me or I've interviewed some of them and they've become clients or they've got a friend who's got a company and they now know me and have heard how I think and think about business and marketing. So yeah, it definitely helps. But um, it's, you know, if you just compare that to asking on a DM or a cold email, hey, are you interested in digital marketing consultancy? Like, they're like, who is this person? Is this like another LinkedIn spammer? Like, it's very different to, hey, I've got this podcast where people listen. Why don't we meet? And of course, that's not the reason, I'm, that's not a primary reason I'm even doing the podcast. But when I have the time with them and I've got two hours with them and they actually understand who I am and what I'm doing and stuff like that, um, if I do a good job, they're probably gonna be someone I continue speaking to over over time. So. That's kind of how I think about it all. Is there anything you're doing that's intentional or systematic about how you stay in touch or build, grow relationships with the people you've interviewed? Because I've already noticed with myself that, you know, there is something that's kind of fascinating and special about the relationship that you have with someone after you've interviewed them. And it's just, it's kind of fascinating. You just feel like you went through the trenches on something. And so I'm kind of curious about what you're doing. I can only imagine that you're doing something intentional around sustaining and growing those relationships and so can you talk about that yeah i definitely i i would say the short answer is yes but i would also say with the caveat that before the podcast i've always just done that as in i genuinely like people and i like like i'm interested in people's stories and i'm interested in 
like how I how I can just stay in touch with people. I like having friends. I like hanging out with people. So I think that's already like a natural thing that before, you know, during college, I would like cold email. Like I cold emailed Gary Vaynerchuk when I was like 18 and he responded to me. And then 10 years later, I interviewed him, right? Or I interviewed or I cold emailed a blogger that I liked who was a student at UCLA. And then, you know, five years later, he invited me to his wedding, you know? So those sort of things happen where, I wasn't trying to get anything out of it. I was just genuinely like expressing like, you know, like, oh, you did something cool. Like, let me just send you a note. Um, so I think that's the first thing is like, it's not coming from a place of like, give me something, you know, I'm just expressing a genuine thought to those people. And then when it comes to the, the podcast itself, yeah, I think the first thing is I have to turn up and do the best job I can. So what I'm always looking for is at the end of the conversation, I ask for feedback if I if they have any. And most guests will say, oh, you did a great job and you were really prepared. And that is like the greatest compliment to me because like growing up, I wasn't that prepared. Right? Like as a student, like I was a pretty good student, but I wasn't like I was super last minute and I didn't um, do the prep work I should have. It's like bad habits. And over time, I've got better at being more proactive with that sort of stuff. So if I've done a good job, I've shown them, I've done the research, I've tried my best to make it the best interview as possible, then I'm already in a good place. Um, the other thing is, like you said, the conversation you have in an interview like this is different to just meeting someone for coffee. Like it's very like I can't ask you about your childhood if we go for coffee. You know that'd be super weird, right? But if I'm having this conversation, you can ask me anything you want, and it's not going to be weird. I might say, oh, I don't want to talk about that, but most of the time that's not the case. So there's a level of depth you get to when you're having kind of these revealing, open, deep conversations. So I think naturally you're just building that connection with someone and you also naturally like get on with someone or you don't. So like Jack Butcher, who's been on the show now twice, I text him almost every day nowadays because we are like become friends, even though I've never met this dude in person, which is kind of weird, right? But like we've got enough connection where I can be like, we're sending each other links for music. Like that's not something I'm going to do on day one with someone who I've just interviewed because I don't want to waste their time. But over time, we got to the point where oh i understand okay he's he's okay to be informal enough and he's not just like oh i'm so busy don't talk to me so i can you know lean in as well whereas other people are like they're like a bit more standoffish which is cool um so with those people it's really just about reading like their signals like if they don't want to it's like dating or anything any relationship is like you don't want to be pushy and eager, but you also don't want to be completely standoffish. So in this relationship, it's really me looking out from their side first because there is a bit of a weird power dynamic, I have to say, in an interview, which I was talking about this last night with a friend. Like I try not to make it like that, and mine are very conversational for that reason. Cause I'm like I have so much respect for all these people, but I'm not like, oh my God, this person, like whatever like sometimes i do feel like that to be fair but most of the time i'm just like oh it's cool what they've done but they're just another person like me and they're they're just like the other friends i have in a way and by the point you've met so many of those people you should just treat them just like an, any other person um but with the same respect so i think that's another thing because if you're just like oh my god like worshiping the person i don't think that's setting you up for a relationship with a person you're just kind of like the eager interviewer so it's a fine line between respect and um giving person room to show their signals and then yeah you can just develop that over time uh, one thing i'll say is that if i can text someone versus email them the connection is closer if i can speak to them in person or meet them you know this is just 
traditional sales, which I've done for a long time, like the best thing you can do is meet someone in person. The next thing is video. The next thing is uh, text. Next thing is um, email. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of how it works. So yeah, I used all those skills in a way, but I'm not really consciously being like, let me get this person's number so I can text them. I normally do get a number because when we do an interview for technical reasons, like if there's a problem, we can call each other. Um, but that's having their phone number. And I also ask them at the end of a call, is it okay to share this with you over text? If they say yes, then that gives me kind of the permission to do that. So yeah, that was a long way of saying there are things I'm doing proactively, but a lot of it is just naturally wanting to stay in touch with people and provide value where I can. In talking about, you know, the guests that you've seen, you know, it seems like, you know, I'm sure you spend a lot of time, at least in the back of your head, you know, synthesizing things, patterns that you've noticed. So what are, what are some surprising connections between guests? What are some guests that, you know, you thought otherwise wouldn't have a lot of common, but you were able to, to draw some insight, like, oh, this is really interesting that both these people did this thing or, you know, think this way or act this way or have this habit. Like, what's, what are some interesting connections you've made between guests? You, you mean like similarities between the, the people, like the types of people they are, the things they've done, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like yeah. what are habits they have, what are, you know, surprising it, yeah. commonalities they've done. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say like there's definitely some commonalities, like all of them obviously very individual, but, and have done very different things. But they, that's kind of like the essence of what a creator is to me, which is you're someone who had an idea and you turn it into reality. And that sounds super simple, but there's a bunch of mental things you need to go through. Like you need to first off, have that clarity of idea and not be scared of sharing it. Then once you share it and you get bad feedback, which happens to everyone, um, you need to have the confidence in yourself to say, actually, I see something that they don't see yet and I'm going to go forward. And then they have the ability to convince other people, which is the, the skill of pre-selling or, or uh, telling a story or sharing a vision and motivating people and convincing them like this is something so exciting you need to jump on this rocket ship or this nonprofit. this is the cause that you're going to care about and this is why you should care about it. so i guess the summary of that is like being convincing or being able to sell is is a form of it um and a lot of it is mental that's why in the interviews we do i'm not just like you know and this is no disrespect to how i built this the podcast because i think it's an amazing podcast but that is all about sharing the story, right? It's a PR story. They, they follow a story arc and it's incredible. They're the best at doing it, but that's exactly what I'm not trying to do. I want to share a story, but I want to tell you the real deal and I want to take out actionable things that you can say, oh, when I got rejected by 20 investors, this is how I actually dealt with it. And it's not just enough to say, oh, well, then you went home and you felt better about it and the 21st one gave it to you. No, that's not that's like the stupid advice like so like the that's what i'm saying is like trying to take that out of people is what i'm trying to do so back to your question though i'd say that um the commonality is the relentlessness to be able to to just keep going uh, that sounds a bit cliche but just seeing like the obstacles they all had to go through and the way they eventually thought about it mentally to say you know a lot of them will say to me what's the worst that can happen? Like many of them have used that phrase. And that's something I've tried to bring into my own life where you're over worrying about if I leave my job, I'm going to leave this salary on the table. I'm going to go into debt or whatever. I don't think someone should leave their job to go into debt, but you know, everyone should do what they want. For me, I left my job 
a few years ago. And I had to lean on that advice and say, well, what did Fabrice Grinder do, who at one point had um, was eating like ramen noodles for two years, literally, and was in crazy debt and uh, couldn't make payroll for several months? What did he do? And he was just like, well, the worst is well, I'm going to have to shut down and I'll go get a job like I had before. And that sounds so simple. And maybe to him, it's that straightforward. But to most of us, it's not. We have that other story of what are my parents going to think, uh, especially our community, right? Like your parents fought and like came to America or the UK like me to give us a better life. And in fact, there's a guy, Gagan Biani, who started Udemy, the episode next week. Um, so like mid, late January, if you're listening to this, it'll probably already be out. And he's Indian. And we talked about this, like how our parents you know, there was an element of like, well, we did all this so you could have a safe job. And now why are you leaving all of that to go and start this company? Um, and I'm sure people listening to this who are lawyers have had that all their life too. Like be a lawyer, doctor, engineer, that's the standard, you know, immigrant way. And that's a great life. Don't get me wrong. But for a lot of us, that's maybe not what you want to do forever. Uh, maybe you want to take those skills and apply it in a different space. So yeah, it's it's a it's definitely an interesting uh, problem to have. You know, I you already hit on, you know, some of the principles you're applying. I wonder if you've got more tangible examples of way earlier talking about, you know, having guests that have opposing views. And so you know, the potential for listen to people and change your mind. And I think that's something that a lot of people have been talking about in my sphere or something that I've been noticing a lot is the superpower of being able to change your mind about things. Because in a sense, it's just like, it, it's crazy to not, right? I mean, how could it possibly be the case that you're right about Maybe. everything? Um, but so, you know, what are examples of topics that people have changed their mind on, but then or more practical or tactical kinds of changes you've made uh, because of, of what someone has shown you? Yeah, I'd say the biggest ones are, I'm not like that active in politics, but the thing that's coming into my mind of course i follow it like anyone else um it's just understanding the other person's point of view like so i grew up like i said like very left-leaning um still am left-leaning but by the time i came to the states i felt crazy here because i'm used to free healthcare and i'm used to like all the kind of safety net of that europe has but i never really saw the bad side of that until i came here right so i came here and i go to a doctor and in the beginning it's a bit weird paying Right, and I pull out and I pay like $50 copay or whatever it was. Um, and that felt like super weird at first. And then after a while, I was like, okay, well, this is just kind of how it works here. Like you probably get paid a little bit more and I have to pay a little bit more out of pocket. But that's kind of the, that's kind of like the, um, the entry fee to be here is kind of how I describe it. So meeting some of those people on the other side. So again, Nathan Luck as an example, he kind of, Stuff that he said made me go down a bit of a rabbit hole to say like, okay, let me go and understand why conservative people think the way they do. Like, what are they conserving? And like, you know, and as I as I got older, I started to realize like there's just this one side where conservative just really means in an age of not Trump, because I think that's more of a loaded uh, conversation, but just traditional conservative versus liberal values. A conservative is just trying to hold on to some things in the past the same way we all still hold on to like family values, like as example. To me, family values shouldn't just be a conservative um, like trait. That's just like, you know, something most of us probably care about. And and on the other side, we've got progressive 
you know politics which is all about progressing and moving forward but the the argument is always about the balance right it's about like how much should we hold on to the past and hold on to traditions and care about the way we used to do things and the romanticism around that and how can we lean forward and say well actually well it's stupid that p- people who are gay couldn't get married like 50 years ago whatever the time period was uh, in a lot of countries and therefore we want to make changes and move in that direction so i just think the biggest thing for me has been like meeting some of those people where i at least understand their point of view and uh, even if i don't agree with it i am like okay well i get where you're coming from even if i don't completely agree with you so i'd say the healthcare is one a specific tangible example where i still prefer having free healthcare but i get now the downsides of the nhs like my best friend's a doctor in nhs and they get paid like 34 grand a year right and and it's crazy to in the uk that doesn't sound that bad but if you're in america 34 grand if you live in new york that's like basically the poverty line here right which is crazy so um if you're in uh the, in the UK you might be waiting 3 months for an operation that here you might get in a week so again it's all about the nuance it's not just a black and white issue of health free healthcare is the best in the UK and here it's terrible it's like pros and cons so i think that's another area that kind of uh, stands out to me you know you talked about you know preserving values and i think you know it was interesting to hear you talk about you know, the way that your, your father and your grandfather talked about poetry and, the, and what it meant to them. Um, you know, it's, I grew up that as well. You know, my, my father's like really into poetry and, and, and like you're saying, you know, like I, I know some or do, but it was just definitely a lot of like, I, I don't know what you're saying. Um, yeah, yeah, Cause yeah. you know, it's, it, cause it's very old poems and, and speaking this, you know, this it's like Shakespeare kind English. Of like you don't exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I'm kind of curious, you know, what are the things that you feel like, um, you know, our generation of, you know, Pakistani, I'm going to connect the dots between Pakistani people in the UK and Americans here. What are the things that, you know, I think we, we really benefit from, from being a part of that old world? Cause I'll, I'll give you an example. I feel like um, something that's kind of stunned me about people that grow up here is, uh, you know, I, I don't, I think where the old world, I'm not, this isn't just exclusive to Pakistan or South Asia. I think this is true in lots of parts of the world. It's that, you know, children are not consumption goods they're investments and so i think that's something they get really wrong in other parts of the world like that's not any way to treat a child but i think some of what they get right is the notion that you know children have responsibility so i think something that always stunned me was you know american kids who didn't uh have any chores or anything like that so what do you feel like are the things that you know um, so I, I think for myself, I definitely have this like hybrid view of values of, Hey, I think old world gets something's right. New world gets something's right. So what, what do you think is that mix for you? Like what, what are the things you think? Yeah, it's a great question, man. I, I think it's, it's hard. I'm trying to think because by now it's just this big mishmash of cultures, you know, like the way you speak Urdu English together, like there's some words I don't, I, I don't speak the best Urdu, but I understand it fairly well. Um, and there's some words like i was saying this the other day that like i was trying to think what the english word for bangan was which is like eggplant right and i was like i'm so used to calling bangan bangan at home or okra is bindi right so like there's just some words i just don't even know in english because i've never had to deal with it similarly there's just some things i'm used to doing that are just the way i've been brought up or i don't even know the difference because i was just in my household so i guess um 
I think the big struggle, and this might open a whole can of worms, but like the biggest struggle for a lot of us, I'm sure people listening to this too, is the uh, is the religious side because regardless of the culture, is the religious values that if you don't agree with everything that your parents do, it becomes quite difficult to just completely let that go or like have them not be upset or disappointed that you're not going to grow up in the same way that they did, which is of course the, the same for every race and religion. But I'd say like with my background and your background, I'm sure as well, being Muslim, there's, there's a lot of like rules, like don't eat this food, like pray five times a day, don't drink. And in the, in the West, these are like, core to the culture right so you're growing up around it and you're not doing that and you're just like okay well this is like it's just a weird hybrid you know and i will say the big difference where did you grow up in in california was it oh new jersey you said in texas yeah texas oh in texas (laughs) texas new jersey did you say Texas, comma, and New Jersey. Oh, okay. I was like, is there a part of New Jersey I've never heard of? But yeah. Okay, cool. So, and if you don't mind me asking, was it more like mixed or was it more white there? Was it more uh, Desi community? Like, what was it like? Yeah, so in I grew up in Houston. And so that had, just by virtue of being a huge city, you know, a ton of South Asian people in general. And where I grew up, I grew up in Aleph, which has, you know, like, it's kind of like well-known for being like this like immigrant melting Got pot. It um like tons of Vietnamese people that kind of stuff um and then where we moved to we moved to uh for a school district you know my parents identified a good school district public school district in New Jersey so we moved there and that was um by the time I graduated high school that was 40 percent Asian it was a huge Asian oh, population right. and it's okay. grown even since then um oh, yeah. so yeah I'm so kind of fortunate that I had that a little bit yeah for sure so mm-hmm. I, so the reason I brought that up is because I actually think the there's definitely a lot of similarities between being brown Asian in America and brown Asian in the UK. But the interesting thing is, when you said Asian there, you were probably referring to Vietnamese, Ch- Chinese, Japanese, mm-hmm. Korean, right? Even mm-hmm. though we're Asian too, right? But That's like, right. But we were used to being called South Asian in the States or Arab incorrectly or Indian incorrectly. But the difference in the UK, you might already know this, is in the UK, when you say Asian, you mean what we look like. And uh, like there's 20% of um, Londoners are like Pakistani, Indian, Bengali, Sri Lankan, etc. So in the UK, even the press, they use the phrase Asian to mean us. Mm. So there's, there's, a different, there's a different nuance of the culture there for, for our communities, especially in London, Birmingham, Manchester, and a few other hubs. Um, so I, I'd say that where I grew up was I lived, literally went to a school where there was all white people and then i also went to school which was all non-white people so it was i kind of saw both sides and there is a crazy difference in like even when i moved here like we basically had our own subculture there you know of which which obviously people have in the states too but there's just there's so many more there's more of us so that in percentage terms like we were able to kind of create these subcultures that um were just well known within london and, and stuff like that so um I'd say that like I already kind of felt like I had that hybrid growing up where we were very Western in some ways, but like even my friends, like some of my friends were more religious than their parents because that was like the counter, like the parents moved from Pakistan and they were like, oh, we're Westerners now. Right. And then the kids are like, oh no, what about our history? And it's, that's one side where another side was like, 
oh, the parent who really wants to hold on to the Pakistani values and the kid wants to be the white kid. So, you know, it obviously varies, but people have both of those. For me, how it's kind of netted out is I just, I definitely love my background. Like I'm proudly Pakistani British, but that's the key point. I just said Pakistani British, right? So it's not just like, if I go to Pakistan, they see me as British. And, and that's kind of a big difference. And I just have accepted over time, that's kind of my identity. And I never felt English until I left England. So that's kind of another nuance of like, I would always refer to myself as Pakistani when I was in the UK. And then I left and I moved to Ireland and then the States. And they were just like, oh, there's that British guy. Like, I bet he loves tea. And I'm like, I was just not used to that. It was so weird to me. Because I was like, oh, these people don't see me. Obviously, they they see what I look like, but they weren't primarily thinking of me as Pakistani. They were just like, oh, that guy is from the UK. So it was just this weird mix of like identity in that way. And um, yeah, so how it's kind of netted out for me is, yeah, I still obviously love that background, love cricket, love tea. <laughs> I love our food and I love the family values that we have. But I, I've also learned a lot about some of the negative sides to that. So just, I can speak for myself, um, not for all brown people, but just for me, I'd say a lot of the people I knew were kind of smothered by their parents, right? More than my white friends or whatever. And um, to some people that might just be like, oh, loving your kids. But then when you kind of learn about like psychology and, and if you ever go to a therapist and learn about some of the things that it can um, impact you on later down the road, um, I think that was probably something where out no fault to my parents, but they maybe overloved me in a way like they probably protected me too much. So overlove is not the right word, but like they probably protected me too much. And because of that, I probably rebelled a bit. And um, yeah, I, I needed to kind of find my own like identity where, you know, when you're kind of in a bubble, you don't really get to express yourself in that way. So yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but it's it's definitely a complicated topic. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was super interesting to, to hear about, you know, coming to the U.S. and like the thing that makes you that the number one people think of you as like the British guy. Like that's just that's a really because, yeah, yeah, it's not at all intuitive or obvious like that that would be the thing that they would think about you because you're right. They could easily say, oh, you're South Asian or whatever. And um, yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, the, the whole like you're saying, the whole concept of South Asian, I actually didn't really appreciate until you put it this way you know, that breakdown of like Asian versus Asian in the U S uh, cause yeah, I think numerically South Asian, I think are, I would think still less than East Asian in the U S. Yeah. I think um, so. And yeah, there's a lot that, you know, that, that those two cultures have in common. Like, so like in, in my school, we had uh, the BYC was a brown yellow crew and uh you know so we all got yeah uh, yeah it was it was a lot of fun because you know it it was it was really cool to like learn about so i had a lot of friends that are korean and chinese and and so it was just great to learn about their cultures and compare notes to you know what was like to be indian or pakistani there's definitely a lot of overlap still a lot of overlap and of course you know we were all like you know in the you know studying hard for the sat and all these things like that you know like there, there was a lot we had in common um but some great differences too. So it's cool that we had that. Uh, so I'm grateful that I grew up with that. Um, and, but, you know, I, it is kind of fascinating to think about, you know, being in a world where, you know, it, it's a little more, you are this one kind of more homogenous immigrant uh, community. Uh, that's yeah. pretty cool. No, it's definitely, well, you know, 
uh, just one last thing I, I was just going to add yeah. was that another nuance there is, and this again is definitely generalizing, but there's um, a lot of the immigrants that came from Pakistan, India to the UK came like, I think after World War, sort of 50s, and then maybe in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of those people were like not skilled workers, like they were working in factories and, and generally quite poor. Uh, and of course, that's happened in, in the States too. But there's been different waves here. So then there was also a huge skilled group of people like that came with that were doctors or, you know, other sort of professions. Um, and I'd say like growing up in the UK, we grew up mostly as like the working class, like the working class um, living in those communities alongside mostly people from like the Caribbean, Eastern Europe, Turkey, um, Africa. So that was just one big crew of people. And the perception of us was closer to like we have a lot of stuff with Black Lives Matter nowadays, which is not the same thing, obviously, for, for us. But we would have similar stuff like getting stopped and searched uh, after 9-11, having a lot of issues, obviously, with that sort of stuff, too. All of the the place where I went to school, which was kind of in the bad school, like the biggest gangsters were the Pakistani dudes. So, so it wasn't just like like whereas here, my friends, my cousins and stuff that I, I know from New Jersey. Yeah, like they have some bad pockets and stuff but it's not the same perception whereas in the uk like it's there's a little bit of a different perception uh there i'd say um so yeah it's it's an interesting nuance that i don't think people fully get and the last thing i'll say on that is like the mayor of london is pakistani british guy so that's just another like just shows you how entrenched we are within the kind of culture there yeah, well, you know, now I have to add one more thing to that, which is, you know, part of the whole thing being the BYC crew is, you know, it was, it was kind of like, you know, just riffing on the concept of a B-boy crew, you know? And so actually like, so hip hop was very influential for the yeah. culture that I grew up in. And I liked hip hop plenty. And so I grew up in an era where, you know, there's this whole East Coast versus West Coast thing. So, you know, you had things like, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, that, you know, you're really proud of, or, you know, Biggie, and these are the kinds of things that you, you had a lot of pride about. I myself only partially identify with hip hop. I didn't really relate to it, but it was a really strong undercurrent, but I was always really fascinated with that. Cause even back then I'm just like, this is so weird that like, we're all about hip hop. Cause like, come on. Like, I mean, yeah, a lot of us are not particularly wealthy. And for a lot of us, the path was, um, you know, we, we went to a school district that was, it was West Windsor Plainsboro and West Windsor was kind of the nicer part of town. Plainsboro was like, poor part of town and Plainsboro is like, you know, a lot of us immigrants started in Plainsboro and you came here, you didn't have any money. And then you worked, you bust your ass and made Completely, some money. And then you moved yeah. to West Windsor. Same as, and my, so, same as my situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so, I mean like, so yeah, I mean, so in relative terms, relative to our white peers, we were definitely on average starting out poor. I don't know if that, I, I, I think where we ended up, I think is, is, is definitely not maybe different, uh, any yeah. less. Yeah. Maybe where, where Asians ended up, out earning their white peers in that part of the, in the world. But so, but all the same, even objectively compared to say the circumstances where like when we listen to this music, we're hearing about, you know, what people, what Brooklyn was like back then. And like what New York was like, okay, well that's not us. And yeah. Okay. We, we get some hassle. Like you say, after nine level, it's pretty bad, but come on, you know, like, yeah, it's you know, different. it was just different. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, it's fast in the hip hop is this language of, disaffection no matter what your circumstances is like even if even if objectively things aren't bad for you you perceive as model minority whatever but just if you're just not part you're disenfranchised you, you aren't you know 
part of the system that you know that does speak to you so that's interesting yeah no definitely yeah i completely agree man it's, it yeah. definitely was like the rebellion anthem like it was the music for people who felt like they didn't fit which to be honest is basically all people right like everyone doesn't yeah. feel like they fit in even like the the rich white kid feels like in their own way and they obviously do have their own issues too so it's it's kind of the beauty of that that culture and music for sure yeah i agree with that okay switching gears kind of a lot um you know i think another thing that we haven't really we've only kind of largely touched on we talked about use of time a little bit but i'm kind of interested in because you know you do have these multiple demands in your time so you've got to allocate your time like capital like how do you know you've got to be thinking about how you do that so interested in hearing you talk about that and also interested in hearing about you know habits because you know i think i'm pretty interested in habits and i'm interested in hearing about you know what are what's like you know what are your core habits like what do you think is like you know the anchor habit of your day yeah i got you so the first one was um time right so yeah that's definitely something i'm uh, you know, I've definitely spent a lot of years like trying to be better at that. And I think I'm pretty good at it now. But I just have over the years, like trying all the different tools and all the methods. I've read books on getting things done and everything. And I feel like the best thing for me anyway is just really making it simple. So I have, I do use an app called Things, which I actually think is a beautifully designed app. And it kind of follows the uh, getting things done uh, methodology which if you guys haven't heard of that the summary is like capture stuff in an inbox and then you allocate based on priorities and uh and i basically move stuff out if i if i don't get to do it uh that week but the the biggest thing for me is just like trying not to do too many things so that's why like i said to you earlier i'm not like proactively trying to like 10x their agency you know consultancy business because it's not like that just requires a lot more of my time and it's not necessarily like what i care about so um i i'm more than happy when people do inbound and i i get some other opportunities i i like entertain it obviously and if it makes sense i I make sure i do it but that's actually one of the things that helps me manage my time is basically being in a position to choose the clients i work with so it means that i'm able to say okay this person is willing to pay x amount like which might be a good thing but i can tell they're going to be tough to work with or they're going to be the sort of client that wants too much for like too little essentially so it's really about like finding the clients who uh, you know you can actually truly add value to and they've got enough leverage that it that it makes sense for me to add my expertise on on top so um so that's a big part of is like actually taking control of like who i work with and that came from leaving my job and and i I, don't get me wrong like i'm not against jobs like i loved my jobs i think the charity work job i had was incredible um but it didn't give me i still was expected to be there nine till six right and um you know that's fine like that's not that crazy a life but you're not going to be able to choose to have an interview uh, for my podcast at 3 p.m. on a Thursday, right? Like it's a different sort of uh, control. And that's what I was optimizing for. Um, so that's kind of like at the macro, like making sure I'm not taking on too much. And then it comes down to, you know, I basically have um, inbox where I capture to-dos and then I move them in every week. I, I review and I say, these are the like three to five things that are the most important. If I'm stretching myself, these are the other things I'd like to do what are the things that I can delegate? So I have an editor, for example, that I can share all the editing tasks for the podcast. And I've over time kind of trained her to do more. So like the 
and, and she's great and it's like she's now also does like the timestamps which used to take me forever so i'm like more than happy to pay her to more money to do it but it's just making sure i had the confidence can she do this first task properly first okay cool let me kind of graduate and give her more responsibility and she's proven that she can do that so that's the other thing is like finding areas of leverage so whether that's literally just paying someone to do stuff that you, you know they're better at doing and i can spend that time earning more money from the other things that that work for me um and then yeah the way i actually manage stuff is i put everything in my calendar like most people i'm sure that are listening to this but i um i actually basically have the things app on my desktop and my phone and in the beginning of the week i can drag that onto my calendar so if i pick the five tasks i'll like allocate time like there's a three hour block um the other thing which i'm sure many people have heard before is just batching stuff so standard tim ferris stuff from a long time ago but still works as i try to only have meetings on one or two days and um, i try to record on the same days um, and I try not to just have like a bunch of me- meetings scattered throughout the week because a lot of the stuff I'm doing is like deep work, whether that's digital marketing strategy stuff, or it's like thinking about like how I can grow things. Um, or if it's like researching to do an interview, there's just, I, I need like to be able to dedicate hours of time at a time. So yeah, that's kind of how I try to like group some of those things together um and try to stay disciplined but obviously i don't get it completely right like like everyone um and then the last thing i'll say is at the end of most days i will just quickly review like what i did and i'll rewrite the task for the next day so by the time you know because it's all fresh in my head so by the time i get to the morning like I, I can hit the ground running i'm not like trying to recollect my thoughts i'm like oh okay yeah yesterday we didn't get to do this these are the three things i need to do today so yeah i hope, I hope that helps and what would you say are kind of the, are there any core habits you oh, yeah, really need habit. to get to in a day? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say the, I forgot what it's called. It's like an anchor habit or cornerstone habit is the phrase that I'm looking for, which uh, Steve Schlafman was on the podcast and we talked about that. He's a angel investor and like a coach nowadays. So he's all about frameworks and you know, personal growth. And uh, yeah, so I really like that concept of like, what's that big habit that helps everything else be better. And for me, it kind of comes back to the the health side. To me, it's always food though. When I'm eating clean, I'm like disciplined, you know, because that's what I need. I need structure because I'm not a structured person naturally. I'm like all over the place. So for me, I need, oh, okay, I'm going to eat twice a day. These are the types of meals I'm going to eat. These are the like, you know, so my diet right now is basically chicken beef kima and uh, like ground beef or whatever uh, so some sort of protein fish vegetables uh salads and that's majority of what i eat like and i just and then eggs so that i don't have to rethink every time like what am i going to cook today and i can you know, i've been eating the same thing for the last few days and i know like i've done it for enough years in the past where i've like logged everything and i know roughly like how much like i need to eat because you know someone like me i could just i could eat like pasta every day if i wanted to and i could eat like four times a day because it's delicious but i know i can't do that so so i just have to be quite strict about like cutting stuff out and that's the problem because um finding balance for me is quite difficult so i like i definitely ebb and flow in it but right now when i'm focused on that everything else feels better and then obviously sleep is the other big thing so i don't know if you would count that as an actual habit but you know trying to get to bed at a certain time 
um there's certain rituals i tried to turn off my phone before but i don't nowadays to be honest because i'm i'm on it quite a lot um and then it's just basic stuff like i make tea in the morning um i used to make a lot of coffee so i kind of did this manual process of grinding the beans and like that was my time to like really just focus in on that um and yeah i listen to podcasts all the time as well so as soon as i wake up i'm normally listening and some people don't like that but for me i'm normally listening to something in the morning that's funny and that's kind of a, not everyone does that um but to me like laughter is like the best way to start the day so even if it's like a podcast that i find funny like there's a few podcasts i listen to regularly um like that just gets me in a good mood you know and then obviously i shower and everything and um that just i'm normally listening to something whether that's music or the podcast when i'm in the shower too and that just gets me started on the right foot um and then yeah and nowadays i've been doing a lot of like first thing in the morning we go for a walk and like you know that's all we can really do right now because it's cold um so that kind of gets my gets me in the right zone yeah i've also been starting my days with uh with a walk first in the morning and i like that it that i like that it's cold that that is uh that is uh you know it's just kind of like when you get that cold in your nose it does wake help you, you up. wake up yeah, I like yeah. the idea of the podcast. It's, uh, you know, listen to something funny first thing in the morning. I have heard people say about the, you know, like someone was theorizing that, you know, it is important to have social time in the morning. So they, so that's an interesting concept. I'll have to try Especially that out. Especially right now, because we're not getting any, to me, yeah. it sounds really sad, but I listen to the same podcast where it's a group of comedians talking or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really sad, but that's kind of like your friends right now, because you're not seeing anyone. Like I'm seeing yeah. a handful of people. So every week, you know you're hearing these things you start you're kind of there in the room and that is good for me other people i I think people kind of get a little bit too like oh you like get too naval like and it's like oh don't touch your phone for three hours and only meditate for an hour and it's like cool if that works for you but most people shouldn't do that like you know it's just it's not practical for most people and i think it just comes from this place of you know he's a great great dude and really wise I, i do like him but like I think people just follow rather than finding what works for them. So for me, laughter gets me in a good mood. And I think it is the case for most people. Um, and, and the other thing I have done in the past, which I don't do as much, is reading in the morning. Like first thing when I wake up, I was like reading either the Kindle or like some long form articles that I've saved on my like Instapaper app, stuff like that kind of like activates a part of my brain, which is which is kind of nice um but realistically i'll be honest i wake up nowadays and i'm like got lots of pings and i look at the notifications like any person does so uh, i'm not trying to pretend like i've got this zen thing down well it's funny because uh you know on the subject of podcasts that kind of like you know leave you you know uh feeling good or just you know having a sense of you know some consistency from it. your podcast is definitely one of those for me so you know i just Thanks, know man. that it's got a very consistent vibe you're always so chill and uh you know like we were talking before like it's it was just kind of fascinating to like start this call with you because you're still in the same set that you always are in and you know, you've got the same voice and so uh you know it's always the same thing so well hey man i'm really glad that we did this and yeah, uh thanks for having me on dude yeah, man, I'm looking Appreciate forward it. to uh, further conversations and uh, yeah, it's it. been cool. All I'd say is if anyone's listened, they made it all this way. Thanks. That's really cool that you, you listened. And yeah, I'd love to hear from people if they did. Just like the best place for me is I have a Twitter. I'm at BZD on Twitter. 
or LinkedIn. I think a lot of the people listening might use LinkedIn. Bilal Zaidi, maybe you can link to it. Um, and yeah, if you like podcasts, then obviously check out Creator Lab. It's on all platforms and YouTube as well. So if you prefer clips and the visual, it's, it's on there as well. So yeah, I'd love to hear what you thought of it and uh, it'd be great to stay in touch.